uh, when I fir- my first job in ministry was to was youth ministry, and so as a 23-year-old, I was ministering to 16 to 18-year-olds. It's kind of funny. Uh, but uh, one of the things I, I started doing with them was I played a lot of golf, which translated to having 16 to 18-year-olds teach me how to play golf. Because I'd never played. I had no idea what I was doing. And they certainly had no idea how to teach. And so it was like this barrage of bad advice. Right, I would go out and not know what to do, and they would yell, you know, stand closer to the ball, stand further away from the ball, get your legs further apart, get a good wide stance, you know, swing harder. That seemed like it came up every time. And, and the more advice that came to me, the stiffer I got. And so that my golf swing at some point began to look like this. And the ball didn't go very far. And there was one guy, his name was Ryan, one guy who just knew a lot more about humans, really, than uh, anybody, than than the other kids, and he understood golf. And he said this to me. He said, Ricky, do you know what a golf swing, like the end of a golf swing looks like? And I was like, oh, yeah. He goes, no, no, show me. And I was like, well, and I just remembered all these, you know, poses, Jack Nicklaus and all the old guys I used to watch. Like, what do they look like when they finish their golf swing? And I was like, that. You know, he's like, yeah, that. I don't care what else you do, get yourself to that. If you look like that when your swing is over, you, you did a lot better than you're doing now. <laughs> and that piece of advice stuck with me, and it actually helped my game. I'm still terrible, but, you know, it helped me a lot. If I just know what I'm supposed to look like at the end, everything else kind of flows to that. We are studying, uh, we're doing something we've do, we do every August where I kind of canvass the congregation for questions and then uh, answer the ones that seem to sum up the, the most. And the question I'm going to answer today is, uh, broadly speaking, what does the Bible mean when it talks about new heavens and new earth? And, and the subtext to that was maybe if we understood where we were going, we would understand how to live today. And I think that's very wise, actually. I think if we understand where the church is going, where we're headed, then we'd have a clearer idea of what we are supposed to be doing. And so what I want to teach today is what does the Bible expect? What is the biblical hope for the world? What is the biblical hope for the world? And, and to put it concisely, because you know what I do. I tell you what I'm going to say, then I say it, then I tell you what I said. So this is it. This is what I'm going to say. The Bible, all the way through, expects God to do for the world, for the entire cosmos. The Bible expects God to do for the world the same thing he did for Jesus. Raise it from the dead. Please stand as we read uh, from 1 Peter. And this is a sermon that really comes from the entirety of the Bible, uh, but I had to pick one text, and I like this one. So, hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass and all of our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. The biblical hope and expectation is that God is going to do for us and the entire cosmos what he has done for Jesus. Uh, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, I think the first thing we have to do to unpack it is ask, what did he do for Jesus? Uh, and more specifically, what did he do for us through Jesus? What is the vehicle and the pattern of our salvation? Obviously, that's in Jesus. We all know that. Um, so, so what did he do? Jesus is, is the the very Son of God, and God uh, made, made himself incarnate. He became flesh. He came to visit us. And that was the first major miracle, that God himself would humble himself and take on the, the very form of a servant and be found uh, in form as a man and, and be born under the law and would obey the law and live an entire life under the law. And he would go even further, Right? So the first, he, he, was, he was incarnate, he became man for us, like us, with us. And then we know God put the sin of the world upon him. Our representative made him the, the second Adam. Just like when Adam sinned, we all sinned. So, so Jesus became the second Adam, and he paid for sin for us, Right? And he goes to the cross, and on the cross, he pays the penalty. The penalty for sin was death, and Jesus dies for us. So far, so good, right? Full stop for most of American Christianity. And when I say most, I mean all, but I'm trying to give you a break and say you're the one who got it right. Full stop. Jesus died for our sins. 100% of the testimonies I have received for people to join this church. Are you a Christian? Yes. What do you believe? Jesus died for our sins. Full stop. 100%. And, And I want you to hear me say this loud and clear. And, oh gosh, I hope you've heard me say this before. I hope you already know what I'm about to say, that is not the gospel. That is not the message of the New Testament. The message of the gospel in the New Testament is that Jesus died for our sins and was raised again for our justification. His death accomplishes nothing without the resurrection. Nothing. If Jesus is just dead, how do you know he paid for your sin? How do you know he's not still paying for it? How do you not know that you're not going to have to chip in a little extra? If Jesus is still dead, then what makes you think any of this is true? What makes him any better than Moses? What makes him any better than King David? What makes him any better than... Fill in the blank with the most offensive thing possible. What what 
is, is special about him. What makes salvation real is that he was raised again for our justification. The Apostle Paul makes that thoroughly clear. I, this is not Ricky speaking. Read 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus did not rise again from the dead, we are the most to be pitied and our faith is useless. We've got to hold on to that. that that's where you should start. If, if last week's sermon put a, 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 a burr in your saddle and you're, you were honest enough to say, I don't know if I really do believe that God can, can affect the world that the spiritual can affect the physical, uh, then start at the resurrection. Examine it. Read it. Read about it. Read, a, read the, the testimonies of it happening. Start there. Can you believe that? And as a religion, Christianity, uh, probably spiritually influenced by Satan, has, has obsessed over the death of Christ to the complete neglect of the resurrection of Christ, and we've gone astray. We've gone astray. I mean, if you want a, the, the greatest example of how we've obsessed about it, uh, this is an illustration that came to me this week. Did any of y'all see uh, that Mel Gibson movie about 10 years ago, The Passion of the Christ? Did you see that? What's, what's the scene that sticks in your mind? It's always the flogging scene, right? It's what everybody remembers. Went on forever. And by the way, I didn't see it, but everybody I've talked to about it said that. It just goes on forever. It's the main, you know, the main scene in this movie, Jesus suffering for us. Do you know how much of the Bible that takes up? One half of one verse. Pilate had him flogged and turned him over to be crucified. That's it. Do you know how much of that movie was taken up with the resurrection? Zero. All right, 10 seconds. Do you know how much of the New Testament is taken up with the resurrection? Without the resurrection, there is no New Testament. That's, that is the, the key for us to remember that we, we become a religion obsessed with the death of Christ. And as a result, I, I, I believe, I genuinely believe this, this is a connection that I make. You don't have to go with me down this road if you don't want to. But we, because we believe it's the death of Christ that saves us, we believe that it's the death of us that finishes that sa sa salvation, right? Jesus died for our sins so that when I die, I can finally leave this terrible world and go to heaven. Be honest. It's kind of what you think. And at the end, this world that's just so awful and terrible and is, is winding down, it's finally going to die and God's going to destroy it and we'll all go to heaven together. And he's going to make something new. And, and it's, it's like a, we've become like a religion of death that is looking forward to death. And that's not Christianity. That is not biblical Christianity. That is not the New Testament hope. The New Testament, first and foremost, it's not the New Testament hope because according to the Bible, you're already dead. Why would you want to look forward to death? You've already been dead. It was the resurrection of Jesus and you believing in that that gave you life. You've already been raised to life. It's, it's, it's a kind of a weird thing, and I want, I want us to think through it together. But, but the, the, new, the way Paul continually describes salvation, the way Peter describes salvation in this text, 
is what? God has caused you to be born again. You've been raised from the dead to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Christ. He was raised from the dead. You being united to him are raised with him. Uh, The way we tend to think of it, by by putting all this emphasis on his death, think of it this way. Because this is actually a pretty decent description of world history according to the Bible. Sin and death has taken us all hostage. It's taken us all hostage down into this dark, deep stronghold. And through it, we were already there. The whole world is already there. Through his death, Jesus entered that stronghold. He wasn't already dead. He had to die to get there. Now imagine watching on television, you know, Navy SEAL Team 6 going in to save a bunch of hostages. And as soon as they enter the the stronghold, we all quit watching and go, well, they made it in. Yes, they're in. I think any sensible person would be like, don't we want to wait and see if he comes back out? Don't we want to wait and see if the hostages come out with him? Nah, he made it in. Woo! Yeah, it's great that Jesus died for us, and that's very important, and you'll never hear me say it's not important. And I've... 50% 50% of the books in my library are about his death, and all of my sermons mention his death. Don't, don't make me say something I'm not. But without the resurrection, that death is useless. He comes out of the stronghold. He goes there to defeat death and to defeat sin and to bind Satan and to bring all of the hostages out, including us. We were those hostages, including the entirety of the world. Jesus was raised from the dead, and we were raised with him. It's so strange that that it's it's past tense. We have been raised. It's hard for us to understand that, right? John chapter 5, Jesus says the day is coming, and, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. And you're like, I guess he's talking about the second coming. And he says, and then and those who die will, will live forever. And you're like, wait, what? You know, and... John chapter 11, Martha meets Jesus at the tomb and, and she says, man, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he said, oh, he's going to live again. And Martha says, yeah, yeah, at the end of the time. Then we know at the resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And he who believes in me, though he die, will live again. And you're like, wait, what? How many times are we going to be raised? And essentially what the New Testament teaches throughout. And I beg you, don't believe me. Read about this. Because I want, it's like when you buy a new car or a used car. But you get one, right? And you're, like, you think that's the coolest car there is. My, I, when I bought my Nissan Rogue, I thought it was the coolest car on the road. And I bought it. And then you know what I found out the next day? Everybody's got one, right? You see it everywhere. When I, what I'm hoping is that you will hear this sermon and go, ah, the New Testament doesn't really talk that much about the resurrection. And you'll go read it, and you're going to realize, oh, wait a minute. What is, how does the Apostle Paul describe our salvation? He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he made you alive together with Christ. And Oh, wait, oh yeah. <laughs> and seated you in heavenly places with him. By grace you've been saved through faith, uh, not of works that anyone should boast. He's, he's made you alive over and over again. And, and we don't, 
because we haven't emphasized that, because all we think about is the death of Christ, it doesn't impact our lives. That you're a new creation. That you're different. You've been raised with Jesus. I've told this story too many times. I'm going to tell it again because I think it's a good illustration. Uh, when I was a, uh, a campus minister, it was always weird. People were really worried about campus ministers and, and men, counseling girls and ministering to girls. And that's, that's a legitimate thing to be worried about, I guess. But um, anyway, so I always had, if I was going to meet with a girl, there was three places I met with them. If, if it was just kind of a hello, get to know you meeting, uh, then I would meet with them in the bakery because there would be a lot of people there, and I could introduce them to other people, and that's really who they needed to know, right? They needed to know other people in the ministry. Bakery's full of RUF kids, and I can be networking with them and get them into the community. If I think she's going to tell me that she broke up with her boyfriend and there's going to be tears, then I would go to the cafeteria. And the cafeteria was big enough that everybody could see us and nobody could hear us. And she could cry but not feel too, you know, vulnerable. And if it was bad, if it was a big deal, uh, my office was in a building in the middle of campus and had this huge porch. And we'd meet on the porch where literally anybody on campus could see us, but nobody could even come close to overhearing us. It's perfect. So I meet with this girl. She writes me an email. She says, uh, hey, can we meet? Sure. No, I, it's kind of a fun part of the ministry, having no idea what's coming next, right? So I go to meet her, and I start walking toward the bakery. And I said, how are you doing? She goes, I've been crying all night. I'm like, oh, let's go to the cafeteria. So we start walking toward the cafeteria. And she goes, I said, so what, what do you want to talk about? And she says, do you remember that letter written by so-and-so back in the fall? I did not. It was an email. I had no idea what she was talking about. But she was crying, and so I bluffed. I said, yeah, yeah. She goes, well, it was about me. Okay. I said, so I wouldn't do this now, but I wasn't secure enough in Jesus to be honest about things like forgetting. And so I bluffed, and I said, so how did that turn out? I had the abortion. Let's go to the porch. So we turn around, make a U-turn, and we go to the porch. We start talking, and she tells me what happened and how it happened and all the, all the just terrible shame and guilt and the after effects of it. And I'm, I'm listening to her, and I begin to talk to her about the gospel. And she says uh, what so many in the South say, yeah, yeah, I know, but. Yeah, yeah, I know, but. I know that nobody's ever going to want me. I know that I've stained myself to a place where nobody's ever going to want to have me as a, as a wife or a friend. I know it's, I've gone too far. And, and that's when I looked at her and I said, no. In Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And do you see how if you don't put the resurrection at the center, you can't say that? If, if, you, if your message of your gospel is, well, yeah, but when you die, you still get to go to heaven, you got nothing to say to this girl. But if you understand that the message of the gospel is your new life begins now, the old is gone, the new is, has come, then, then you've got a world of things to say. And we were able to walk her through, and she became such a beautiful minister. We were able to walk her through repent, repentance in life, and she's been a, such a great encouragement to so many. 
That's the hope of the, the world. The hope of the world is Christ. The, the hope of the world is that Jesus is on the throne ruling the world right now. The hope of the world is that he has sent out his messengers to say, death and sin have been defeated once and for all. Jesus is on the throne. Acknowledge him as your king right now. That's the the good news. That's the gospel. Acknowledge him as the king right now. What do we pray? When Jesus says, pray like this, what do we pray? Your kingdom come. Now, let's take a second. When we pray your kingdom come, what direction, who is moving what direction? We don't pray take us to heaven. We pray your kingdom come. You see the difference? Take us to heaven means I don't like it here. Get me out of here. Your kingdom come means your reign is going to fix everything. Get it in here. Bring it here. That's the, the hope of the world, the, the new heavens and the new earth descending. In, in the last chapter of the Bible, John looks up, and what does he see? Does he see the, the Christians getting zapped out of the world and taken to heaven? No. What does he see? The new heavens and the new earth descending to this earth. This world transformed. That's our hope, and that's our job. And it's coming. It, it, it's not going to come like that. Right? It comes increasingly. The, the, the direction things travel in the Bible is that your physical reality more and more resembles your spiritual reality. Right? So you're progressively looking more and more like someone who's alive in Christ. You're progressive. You are raised with Christ. You are alive. But you have all kinds of sin clinging to you. And as you grow and as you live in him, he is sanctifying you, he's cleansing you, and he's making you look more and more like a new creation in him. We call that getting better, <laughs> right? And that's what's happening to the world. The world is the, the kingdom of God. God does reign over it. It's no longer enslaved to sin and death and power and greed and corruption. And more and more, it is going to be washed of those things and, and to be cleansed of those things until this world is a world of peace and life and industry and safety. All those things are happening. They are. Not, they haven't happened yet. This is a hard thing to convince people of. of. The gospel in the world is at work. It is working. Look at what the Bible says is going to happen. When are we going to know that the gospel has finished its work? Well, you know, my favorite passage, Isaiah chapter 11, the, the ox will eat straw like the, like the uh, I mean, the, the bear will eat straw like the ox, the lion and the lamb will lay down together. I was actually thinking about that this morning. Uh, this, yesterday, I was driving uh, up in the North Tulsa and drove by the zoo, and I thought, you know, if you go in there, they actually have a lion and a lamb pretty close together. <laughs> I don't think that's what God was talking about, but it's interesting. Um, what does it mean? It means that enemies are going to find peace. Natural enemies, it seems like it's just written in their DNA, will find peace, and they'll lie down together. Are we, are we seeing that happen? Yeah, we're seeing that. 
uh, it's an enormous deal that uh, New City Fellowship is located where it is in North Tulsa. A, a, a church body that is dedicated to, to African American and Anglo Americans worshiping together just blocks from where the worst ma- uh, racial massacre in American history happened. A- have you been amazed by that lately? You should be. It's a big deal. We're moving close. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. It- it's funny. I feel, like, I feel like there's two kind of groups in the world. There's those who insist that everything is terrible and it's never been worse. And I'm like, you have no sense of history. And there are those who believe that everything is getting worse and I'll say, you've got no sense of future. We're making progress. Isaiah 65 says when someone dies at 100 years old, we're going to say, that guy was cursed. He had a short life. And we thought, oh, that's an exaggeration. They're talking about eternal life. And it's always kind of confused me, right? Because why would, if they can't be talking about heaven because you're not going to die in heaven. Well, you know what the average age span of a human has done in the last 200 years? It's gone from 45 to 85 that amazing yes say yes that's amazing there's going to be reconciliation there's going to be peace there's going to be safety they will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain says Isaiah 11 should have made that the scripture text but I feel like I read it too much to you Is, is safety increasing in this world yes absolutely Every study that comes out says fewer people die by violence today than at at any point in world history. Have a sense of history. We're moving there. The Lord is at work. And, and, And we're moving to a place where when the apocalypse comes, see that that word apocalypse? What do you think of, right? Apocalypse is just a word for revelation, right? What's going to happen? God's going to pull back the veil, and we're going to realize he's been here all along. He's going to open our eyes, and we're going to see the world as reality, and heaven's going to be all around us like it already is. It's already here. It's coming to us. That's the unveiling. That's what the book of Revelation is about. He sees it. He sees it. It's like when uh, Elisha is going out to, to confront the Syrian army and his servant saying, what are you doing? They're going to kill us. And Elisha looks at him and goes, oh, we got way more people with us than they got with them. And Gehazi sees an army with a thousand trained soldiers and he sees he and Elisha, like there's two of us. We're going to lose. And Elisha, listen to this, he says, Lord, open his eyes. And Gehazi says he looks up and he sees angels with swords of fire all around. He did not pray, Lord, send us angels. They were already there. He just couldn't see them. That's what the unveiling is. That's what the apocalypse is. When we will finally see it. And the, and the vehicle, how is that going to get here? The knowledge of the gospel of the Lord will cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea. Through the work of the church, through the work of, of, the, of Christians who, will, who have been raised from, from 
their slavery and death and sin, and they are growing to look more and more like it. And as they walk in God's good works, what does Ephesians 2 say? You've been saved for what? You've been saved to walk in the works that God has laid out beforehand for you. You haven't been saved by your works. You've been saved to do good works. And as we walk in those works, God is at work saving and redeeming the entirety of the world. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? It looks like, you know, God is not, it looks like being faithful where God has you. Being faithful where God has you. When I was in seminary, we'd always read this, you know, when we talk about this kind of thing, we'd always bring up Abraham Kuyper. Y'all know who Abraham Kuyper was? He was the guy who kind of, uh, right around the turn of the 20th century in that time era, he coined the phrase Calvinistic world and life view. All the world is under God's control and and we're going to take a dominion of all things for him and 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 Abram Kuyper was was very successful and we always love to talk about that how he was elected to be the prime minister of Holland you know what we never talked about he was not reelected. he was defeated in a landslide because when you really start trying like he got elected by all these conservatives who wanted to you know See, see Holland cleaned up and when he started like going hey we gotta, gotta help the poor too and he started actually just a lot of a lot of programs that seemed counterintuitive and so by the end everybody hated him that's kind of that's fairly common it's not going to be through power and influence like we wanted it to be what is it going to look like how are we going to bring this effect of our resurrection to, to the reality in the world what does Peter say? Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith that's more precious than gold, which does perish, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is unveiled, your faithfulness through struggle, through suffering, is what's going to bring glory and praise and honor. That's how we're going to bring it. It's not the way we want it to. It's not through power and, and, and glory and, and, you know, might. It's going to be by God's Spirit upholding us wherever He puts us. Sometimes He puts us in positions of great influence, but for every Abraham Kuyper, there are a million school teachers sitting in their students' desks before class starts and praying for them. And, you know, for every um, great surgeon, there's a million wonderful uh, nurses and interns just bringing the gospel into those hospital rooms. There's a, there's a gazillion sick Christians bringing the gospel into those hotel, uh, hospital rooms. Sorry, not hotel. It, occasionally it looks like Abraham Kuyper, but more often it looks like my friend Libba Dean spent the last 13 years of her life being fed and washed and dressed by nurses in long-term care. I've never seen a funeral so well attended. Somebody who didn't get out of the hospital for 13 years. Every nurse that ever attended or came one of them grabbed my pastor's arm and said, I, wanted to, I want to know the Jesus that Libidine knew. 
Can you tell me about it? It's how we suffer. It's how we walk. It's how we live. And, it, and it's at work. And God's at work doing it. Not long after the Korean War, actually during the Korean War, there was a uh, Presbyterian minister walking the streets of Seoul, Korea. He'd come over to preach a big revival to, to thousands. But uh, during the day, he, he was just, one morning he got up to walk and pray, and he saw the garbage man, and he saw the garbage man um, walk over to a box and start to pick it up, and then the box moved. <laughs> he was like, oh, no, what kind of animal we got here? So the garbage man left it alone, and he's like, oh, wow. I wonder what lives in the garbage in Korea. So he goes and he opens the box and he finds three small children huddling, trying to keep each other warm. And he looks and he sees the, the garbage men throwing bundles of rags into the back of the garbage truck. And he walks over to the truck and he sees that those are children who froze to death in the night. And he said, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. So he started checking into the orphanages and he found out there were orphanages there but they didn't have any funds and so he went back to America and started focusing on raising up sponsors in America that would fund these orphanages in South Korea and he got real he was a humble man and and after the ministry started to get some traction and get well known he he thought it was wrong that he had his name on it and he didn't want the credit for it so he named it Compassion just for the children in South Korea. And the ministry grew and grew and grew until in the uh, 1990s, the, uh, the Korean orphanages and churches got together and sent a letter back to Compassion saying, we don't need your sponsorships anymore. We got this. In 2018, the biggest... Uh, nation in the world that, was, that gave the most money through compassion, that sponsored the most children. First was America, second, South Korea. Do you see how that narrative is the opposite of what so many Christians believe today? If what most Christians believe today were true, then that ministry would have gotten, the, the need would have gotten bigger and bigger, right? Because everything's dying, everything's going to hell, everything's terrible. The gospel's not accomplishing anything. It's because we, we don't have eyes to see it. We don't see what God is doing in, with the poor. We don't see all these tremendous, wonderful things that, that are happening through the, the work of just day-to-day Christians. But one day you'll see it at the revelation of Christ. That is what our hope is. That is what we're looking forward to. God is going to do for the world what he has done for Jesus. Please pray with me.